So today's text comes from Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be reading starting from the very beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 15. So Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. You can either pull out your Bibles, you can pull out your phone apps if you desire. If you do, do, do use your phone apps, we just ask that you do your best not to get distracted. And if you want a third option, we'll be reading it together up on the screen. So Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'd like to start this morning by posing a question to you all, and it's up here on the screen. Who is the most selfless person that you know? If you're comfortable, you don't have to. You can turn to your neighbor and tell them that person. Who is the most selfless person in your life that you know. Okay, now turn to your neighbor and tell them who's the most selfish person that, I'm just kidding, don't do that. Who is the most selfless person that you know? When we think about selfless people, our hearts fill with a lot of admiration. I think as you are thinking about whoever it is in your mind, you probably look up to them You're probably very thankful to God for them, that they're in your life. We hold them to high esteem. And selflessness comes out in a number of ways. But maybe the person that you're thinking of, uh, the reason why they came to mind is because uh, they often sacrifice their desires for the sake of others. Maybe the person that you're thinking of, of always puts themselves last. Other ways that selflessness comes out, maybe you're thinking of somebody whose mind is always thinking about the well-being of other people. Or maybe their happiness, they're very selfless because their happiness is integrally connected with the happiness of the people they care about. When the people that they love the most are not doing well, they struggle too. When people who they love the most are really happy, it just makes them happy. People like this, selfless people. At the end of today's message, at the very end, I'll share with you my personal answer at length. But one that we can all share, our shared 
group answer that we can have right now is our role model, the Apostle Paul. Because Paul, in the text that we'll study today, show us a side of his pastoral and selfless heart that all of us can be challenged to grow like. So why do I say this? Why Paul? The past three weeks, as I mentioned, we studied Romans 8. And we are riding the wave of the gospel high. This is arguably and most likely, actually, the most important chapter in all of Scripture. Not only just for what it says, but the beauty and the writing for how he perfectly encapsulates the gospel and what it means to us. So we are really riding that gospel high wave. And last week, Pastor Hojin closed that chapter off for us with some of the most important verses in all of the Bible. I'll just listen to this. I'll read it for us in the verses 38 through 39, where Paul says, For I am sure. Remember, uh, Pastor Hojin talked about that certainty. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the mountaintop. This is like the climax of all letters and books that we have in the Bible, of of passages of how great Jesus' love is for you and for me. And so our expectation is we're just going to keep riding this wave, riding up in the clouds, enjoying our time, how we we bask in the realities of Jesus' love for us. But Romans actually takes a really hard, unexpected turn. I like to think of Romans 8 as like, you know, we're like cruising down like the Pacific Coast Highway in California, definitely in a convertible, you know, your, your good-looking boyfriend or girlfriend in the seat, and they're probably doing this out the window. So your favorite song is playing. And that's Romans 8. And as soon as it ends, it's like deer crosses the road, slam the brake, cut the wheel. Everyone's freaking out. So I'm going to read this for us, and, and, and you'll look at it on the screen. But what I did was I removed all the verse numbers and chapter numbers and headings. I don't want to get distracted by what the editors put in there, because this is just Paul's continual thought. He's just penning his feelings and and, and theology onto the parchment. And so we'll read it in that way. So let's get into his brain. For I am sure, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor to come, powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? So, 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 Paul, right? It's like, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am depressed. What happened? How do we get from, again, probably, arguably, we keep using those terms, the most joy-giving, life-giving chapter in the whole Bible, some of the most beautiful written truths of the gospel that nothing, no power in this earth, both seen and unseen, spiritual or practical or human, whatever, can separate you from the love of God, and he immediately talks about his depression, his sorrow, unceasing anguish. 
The next verse, he continues. He says this, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. See, what's happening here, and we're not going to read all of chapter 9, but chapter 9, if you read it on your own, or maybe you'll talk about it in your CGs in the midweek, he describes the purpose or the, the reason for his unceasing anguish and his great sorrow because his heart starts to think and his mind starts to dwell on those who are lost. He starts thinking about his brethren in Israel, people who can't say, verses 38 through 39, the people that he's thinking of who cannot say, nothing is going to separate me from the love of Jesus. People who have shunned or never heard the gospel. People who refuse Jesus' love and grace for them. People who are not transformed and saved believers. And so this helps us in our context to get to the verse that we started with this morning in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, Paul shows us a beautiful example in the selfless model for us to follow. Yes, it is absolutely good And it is absolutely right for us to celebrate the work that Jesus has done in your life. The fact that we read chapter 8 and we are on the mountain peak is not wrong. It is good. In fact, I would say it's mandatory and necessary to respond in praise to the Lord Jesus for his goodness to you. But Paul also, he weeps and mourns and grieves over those who do not have the same testimony which leads us to our first point for today's message. That as God's chosen people, our hearts must ache for the lost. As we've been going through this Roman series this summer, have you thought of others? Has it only been how your life benefits? Or have you thought of the people that you care about or the people in your life or maybe unreached nations and people groups who cannot say this along with you? How often do you think about the people who don't know Jesus and you're meditating and rejoicing over the goodness of of the sweetness of the gospel in your life? Has it led you to yearn for that for the people who don't have that same story? See, after expressing his anguish and desire to see the lost saved, Paul goes on, and he teaches us somewhat of this formula and this process for salvation, starting in verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul gives us somewhat of a formula, right? The steps of what happens for someone to meet Christ and to be transformed. And, And it just boils down, it's right there in the text, like heart and mouth. So heart being the inward belief, mouth being outward confession, And then Paul talks about how this is freely given to everyone that is not just meant for Abraham's seed, not just for Israel, not just for the Jews, but to Jew and Gentile alike. And then he says in verse 13, he stamps it saying, everyone 
There's no boundary. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So why isn't he happy? Because that's not enough, is it? This formula, these steps, the heart, the inward belief, the mouth, the outward confession is pointless because there's a critical piece missing. It becomes pointless if people are not sharing the good news. It becomes rendered useless if there are not people preaching and if there are not ears listening and hearing. People cannot believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths if the gospel is never shared to them. And so he brings up this exact problem. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear with someone not pre- without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? And the point he's making is our second one. As God's chosen people, our voices must preach the good news to the lost. See, something that all of us, including myself, need to realize or maybe re-realize and relearn right now, today, from Romans, is that sharing the gospel with those who do not know our Savior is a necessary part of your faith. It is an essential component to your discipleship. It is a critical piece to the mission that you have in your life. Yes, we have unique ones. Yes, we have unique gifts. Even the gifts and calling class will tell you about the way that it is framed unique. But there are also bigger ones that are not unique at all that all of us shared. When you became a believer in Jesus, that moment you became an evangelist. Not after you've trained enough. Not after you've been able to defend the faith enough. Not after you've had enough life experience. When you became a believer... Preaching the good news became an essential component to your discipleship. So let me ask, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? For many of us, I'm going to guess that it was on a missions trip. I'm going to guess that on this missions trip, it was probably overseas. I'm going to guess that on this overseas missions trip, you probably needed a translator You probably were there temporarily. You maybe probably will never go back and almost certainly will never meet these people again. Why is it that so many of us, including myself, oftentimes we need to go somewhere? We need to raise $3,000 and get on an airplane to share the good news. When there are people in our lives right here who have not heard, precious children of God made in his image who need Jesus. I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks, maybe for me, maybe for you too, is that when we're not fixed, focused, what happens is that missions and evangelism becomes a subset of our faith it becomes a, a job, a task, a checklist, as opposed to just an integral part of it. Therefore, we plan for it, 
we train, we look ahead about it, we put it on our calendars. It's bound between this state and this state on my calendar, and we do a lot of it in between. But as soon as that section of my faith is over, I'm done. As many of you know, I went into seminary straight out of college. So I graduated in May, had commencement in my university, and then that August, I was moved in and ready to start seminary life. And since then, you know, I jumped into internship and becoming a pastor. And, and so my life naturally just became very much surrounded by Christians, almost exclusively. And those who are not were the seekers, people who maybe aren't confessing believers, but they may show up to church, or they may be interested in having a spiritual conversation with me. And so the last time I was thinking that I had not just like a relationship, because I still have relationships, but like a close like living together or intertwined relationship was the living together, was my freshman year college roommate. So I move into college, I'm so excited, and I have this new roommate, this random guy. We're, we're getting along pretty well. And about, I, I wanna say it was around October, my freshman year of college, my roommate just asked me on Sunday night as we were hanging out one evening, he's like, hey, where are you always going early Sunday in the morning? Because college students, we don't do that. We sleep. Like, what's wrong with you kind of thing? I'm like, oh, I, I go to church. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh, he's, oh, that makes sense. And we had this brief conversation. I explained to him, oh, I go to this church over there on this other campus, and, and it's blah, blah, blah. And we had a really positive conversation. And so a day or two passes, and I was thinking about it. And I was like, man, like, you, like, you know, dummy. Like, why didn't you invite him, right? And so I was like, beating my, not beating myself up, but I was a little disappointed. I was like, why are you going to invite him? And I was like, okay, so I have a plan. Ready? Like, he's going to ask me again because he'll be curious about my faith, and then it's going to be perfect, you guys. Like, I'm going to invite him to church. I'm going to say, oh, like, have you ever been before? Do you know Jesus? I'm going to preach the gospel to him. He's going to accept Jesus on the spot, pray the sinner's prayer. We're going to hug and cry, and then we're gonna, he's going to become a believer, and it's going to be perfect. And so I waited. He's going to ask me. And then the semester went by, and I was like, he's going to ask me in January hey, how was break? Did you go to church? I'm like, oh, I did. Let me tell you about it. And then the semester went by, and then I never saw him again. I moved out. What, is all, what do all sophomores do? They room with their friends. And I look back on this opportunity, and obviously uh, 20, uh, hindsight is 2020. but I think I was so terribly foolish because I kept saying, oh, God, like, please open up an opportunity for my roommate to ask me a question out of curiosity. And I was just waiting, thinking that God wasn't opening a door for me to share the gospel because he wasn't interested. He slept five feet away from me. We did our homework together, shared food, played video games, chatted about other things. But what I said at the time was, God isn't opening a door. He slept right there. I heard him snoring all the time. Every day I had an opportunity. But I fell into this trap. Evangelism must be formulaic. It has to be steps. He needs to approach me because if I approach him, then it's me being that like hody-toady like Christian, like shoving it down your throat. Let me tell you about Jesus. No, if he asks me, that's what all the hip evangelism books say. Build relationship. Pique their interest with your love. But it never came up. And so I wonder, if I had a t-shirt that was like, UMass Missions, yeah, like would I have shared? Probably. If I had a team and raised support 
sent out a support letter. Hey, everyone, I'm going to missions to my dorm. All of your funds will support my ramen and dirty Chinese food to eat together with my roommate. I probably would have shared the gospel with him. It's because it had to be a formula. It had to be settled and according to plan. Would I confess that it wasn't just a part of who I was? It wasn't just me being a follower of Jesus. It was a goal to work towards, as opposed to my DNA. Gospel preaching from every follower of Jesus is a necessary part of our discipleship. This is how I want to challenge us all today to respond, not just today, not just to tomorrow, but for the rest of your life. It's this. This is our application to initiate and craft intentional shared life with a non-believer and then to explicitly look them in the eye with your mouth, confess the gospel to them or, or share the gospel to them. Build relationship and share. And don't be like my 18-year-old me. Don't wait for opportunity. Craft it. Make your own opportunities. Don't wait for perfect conditions. Don't wait for your conversation. Don't wait till you are mature enough or or trained enough. Don't wait for the next trip that you sign up on. Create your own opportunities, which are plentiful, friends, plentiful, and then seize those opportunities. Do you have a coworker that you're friendly with but you never spend time outside of the office? Become their friend. Love them. Invite them to meals after work. Explore hobbies together. And then share about what Jesus did in your life. And express genuine interest and care about what is going on in their lives. Let me tell you something. I know that we get fearful of the judgment. Oh, they're going to think that I'm a crazy Christian. But at least in my experience in the secular world at the gym, and you know, I, you, many of you know that I've, I've worked there, for many, and that's where most of my relationships with non-believers are at the gym. So many people are hungry to just share and to open Because we get used to it as Christians. This is an aside. It's not here. But you're expected to sign up for a small group where somebody asks you about your feelings and how you're doing. I know a lot of us get uncomfortable and roll our eyes again, like, oh, I don't want to go to CG. Let me just tell you that we cannot take that for granted. We're spoiled. The unbelieving world is aching to share. I'll be at the gym stretching with somebody, like, hey, how's it going? Just affecting them to say good. And they're like, oh, my dog is sick, and blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, I don't want to know that much. They just go on and on because they don't have that in their lives necessarily. But you can be that. We can be that for people, actually loving them beyond surface level stuff. Do you have a classmate or roommate? Someone you're friendly with, but maybe you study together, you share notes, maybe you go play basketball or video games with together or share share meals. Show and express genuine love and care in their lives. Purposefully craft that opportunity to purposefully get to know them on a deeper level. And then share what Jesus has done for you. Sharing the gospel is an integral, necessary, critical part of our following Jesus. And our call this morning is to renew that commitment. Love these people in your lives enough for you to share with them. Asking Jesus to break your heart for them to be even maybe to the point of sorrow and anguish like Paul or the people in your life who don't know him. And then share the good news.
I mentioned at the beginning of the message that I would give you my personal answer to the question. And so, to who's a selfless person in my life. And I'll close today by sharing a little bit about my grandmother. Um, this is her. She's cute, right? I'm going to take the picture off because I might cry. Um, Woo, okay. So growing up, my parents, my, I mean, growing up, my parents. Growing up as a child, my parents were always working. So this is my mom's mom, and so she lived with us for many, many years, and so she pretty much raised me. Uh, she was the one that, you know, I would come home from the bus stop, and she would be there waiting, would make me lunch and all that stuff. She played a huge role in my development as a young boy and in my faith. She would force me to sit with her while she prayed for like five hours and I'm just like falling asleep, like, grandma, stop. Like I would interrupt her during her prayers and be like, how much longer? And she'd be like, one more minute, one more minute. She'd keep going. And so now when I pray too long and you get mad at me, I, I, I understand, you know, like some people pray too long and she just prayed too long and she just showed me how to love God and to love Jesus. And I remember we had a system in my house that made sense to me, but it just doesn't make sense in real life because it was a unique thing to our family. So she would very often give me random objects that had no meaning to me. So a very common example, so let's say a church person would, ha- would give her, gift her socks on Sunday. That afternoon, I would come home, and she would walk straight up to me, like, hey, here's some socks. And I would be like, what am I going to do with pink women's socks? So I would fight her and give it back. And then one time she came with a whisk, like, I don't know why she wasn't cooking, but a church person gave her, like, this new whisk. I'm like, do you want me to make crepes or something? Like, I'm six. I just want to go play flashlight tag. You know, and I would give it back, and we would fight. And so my mom finally told me, hey, just, first of all, if you keep arguing with her, she's not going to let you, she's going to force you to take the weird things and food and all these trinkets. And, like, one time it was a tea set. I'm like, I don't even know what this is. I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little kid. So just accept it, say thank you, because that's going to make her happy. And then when I get home from work, give it to me and I'll put it back into her room and she won't even notice. So that was my system. Oh, thank you for this like new broom, you know? And then mom, grandma gave me a broom and then it would go back and it was this, this funnel. Eventually I got older, I think probably junior, senior year of high school, where now I'm old enough to understand. And so I had a conversation with my mom, like why does she keep doing this? So my mom explained to me things that I as a kid would have never thought about but kind of... It just all makes sense. So my grandmother is the age of, of course, growing up during the war, the Korean War. So she endured the extreme poverty. Uh, Don't need to go into all the horrors of war and occupation. And during that time, a lot of people, they took two roads. It was either every man and woman for himself or herself, or we got to support each other to survive. She took this road of being loving and supportive and taking care of other people. And so what happened in her life that started during the war and post-war in poverty was she created this system of just lying all the time to help other people. And what I mean by that is a very common example would be at mealtimes. She would come home from work, she would sit with her family, and they would share the, the meager portions that they had. And she would lie. They would pass out, and she would say, oh, no, like... At work, like I ate, uh, you know, they had food, and so I'm so full, like I can't even think to eat, like you should have more. All the while, she didn't have a single bite of food. 
And this just became a normal part of our life. She would receive things like the opportunity to finally get a new pair of shoes, and she would walk to work with it and be like, my son made a lot of money and bought me new shoes, and so here, you should have it. She's just lying. She didn't have anything. She just wanted to keep giving and keep giving and keep giving and keep putting other people um, above herself. And so as I got into high school and college, we switched roles. I then became her caretaker. So, for example, with meals, I would be the one to give her meals. And so I would wake up in the morning, bring her breakfast. I'd go back to my room, start playing StarCraft or Counter-Strike or something. And I hear a knock on the door. Grandma's there with, with the breakfast that I gave her. Hey, like, I have some food for you. You should eat. I'm like, that's your breakfast. She's like, oh, no, I ate so much before. No, you didn't. I bring you your food, you liar. Like, you're lying to my face. I brought this to you. It's like, no, like, there was other food. No, there wasn't. So even when there's these illogical, like, ridiculous lies to my face, it was just who she was. She wanted other people to be taken care of before herself. First of all, I don't encourage lying. <laughs> so, Grandma, you shouldn't lie. But I share this story to say that having a selfless and loving heart that looks out for others is not a seasonal thing. I think the people that you all thought of, they're not just like that when things are tough or when things are easy. My grandma wasn't just like that during the war or during poverty. We were living in America. We weren't rich, but we were definitely rich compared to what she had before. We never ever worried about food and water, certainly. There was no shortage of anything. And it was just written into her code. She was always looking out for other people first. See, our calling in this Christian life is to have a heart that aches and acts aches in love, and then acts in love for people who do not know Jesus. It's not a seasonal thing. It's not an opportunity thing. It's not a get on an airplane and fly to another place thing. It's not a, hey, when the church gets together and does an outreach in the Boston Commons thing. It is a DNA thing. It is a discipleship thing. It is absolutely a I am a Christian thing. So in response to the word in Romans and Paul's example, I would love to invite all of us this morning to ask the Lord to break our hearts for the lost and then for us to lovingly go and share the good news about all the good things that Jesus Christ has done.